Good morning. This morning, we are in Psalm 47. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 47. And if you don't, there should be a blue Bible in front of you. And it is on page 522. Go to the middle and maybe a little bit to your left, and you'll probably find it pretty quick. And if you don't have a Bible, now you do. It's the blue Bible in the pew in front of you. You can take that home with you. It is a gift. Psalm 47. We are continuing in our summer series through the Psalms. We kind of do this every summer, and maybe one summer we'll get to the end. But by that point, you know what? There's 150 of them, so we get to start over again. It's going to be, it's going to be great. But right now we are in Psalm 47. Psalm 47, hear the word of the Lord. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I'm not sure if you have seen this movie, but it is a seminal cinematic work. If you have not, I don't know if I am recommending it to you necessarily, but it's worth a try. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. By the laughter, some of you have seen this movie. As you know, it is comedic gold. It truly is something. But in this movie, there's a king, King Arthur, and he's on a quest. If you haven't figured it out, it's for the Holy Grail. And on his quest, he comes to this castle. He's not really sure who lives in this castle, so as he's kind of far off, he asks somebody, who lives there? Now, this man that he asks, which there was some confusion about exactly if this was a man or a woman at first, but he figured out it's a man. His name is Dennis. And Dennis very much appreciates being called by his true name, Dennis, and not peasant. And he also doesn't buy into the whole honor system where the Lord should be honored by the peasants no matter what. He doesn't really get that. Actually, he has an entire different um, political system in practice in this commune. The scene unfolds as Dennis explains a massively complicated democratic system in which the people of the area take turns to rule in an executive office for a week, and they can only make decisions that are ratified at every bi-weekly meeting 
simple majority for internal affairs and two-thirds majority for all major matters and affairs. Now, as Dennis is going on, and he's explaining this, this lesson on political science, King Arthur is quite frustrated. And to be exact, he's actually just really confused. Why in the world is Dennis talking about political science, which King Arthur has no idea what he's talking about, why is he not honoring me? I am the king, after all. He told them he is the king of all the Britons, and their response to that was, well, I never voted for you. And so they ask him, who made you king? And here's where Arthur, elegantly, with much majesty and decorum, explains the lady of the lake had dubbed him king and given him Excalibur to carry, protect, and wield as his authority. Just imagine. You don't have to have seen the movie. Imagine these folks over here who understand political theory and are trying to explain a very complicated system to this king over here who's saying, a lady in a pond made me king. What would your face look like? What do you think their faces looked like? They are astonished. Can you imagine that? And while poor King Arthur is confused and infuriated, the movie's making a point, and it's doing it very well and quite comedically. Some sort of self-proclaimed king is not worth praising. Not even the praises of one peasant named Dennis. But... Here in Psalm 47, what we see is the exact opposite. We don't see a king that has been knighted by the lady of the lake. We see a king who is victorious and mighty and reigning and righteous. And he's not just worthy of some praise, but, <clears throat> but the praise of all the earth. The king we are confronted with here is the king of all the earth, and he is worthy of the praise of all the earth. Now, this psalm breaks into two major sections. If you look back at the text with me, you see in verse 1, there are these commands. Clap your hands, shout to God with loud songs. And then verse 6, you see more commands. Sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, five times in two verses. You can sum up the command of this text with Praise. Praise God. If you read Psalm 47, you leave, praise God. That is the instruction. In between those two instructions, though, we see why the king is to be praised. And we see that it is not simply some people that should praise him. It's not simply one people group. It is not simply Israel. It is you me and the whole world, even Dennis, should praise this king. So our psalm this morning, if you're a note taker, has one point. God is the king of all the earth who is worthy to receive praise from all the earth. And to make it, we're going to look at, make this point, we're going to look at three emphases that this psalm shows us as to why we praise God as king and what this call means to us, what we should take away with it. So our first two points come from the text. The first one is praise the king for his victory. 
in verses 1 to 5, then praise the king for his sovereignty in verses 6 through 9. And then we're going to back away from the text a little bit, and we're going to look at the whole psalm for our last point, which is praise the king with his global community. Praise the king for his victory, his sovereignty, and with his global community. If you would, look back at verse 1 with me. We'll start with our first points. Praise the king for his victory. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Right there. You read this psalm, the very first verse, and it just hits the ground running. It is, you're, you're walking into a football stadium where the game-winning touchdown was just scored. Everybody's going nuts already in verse 1. Everyone's hugging and hands are up and they're clapping and the announcer's excited. Everyone is going off with praise and joy right here in verse 1. And in the first section, what we see is that we're praising this king who is most high. Most high. He is the one that other kings, they might call themselves most high, but this one is most high because he is to be feared. He is to be feared. And why he's to be feared is because he has subdued all the peoples and nations. He has given inheritance to his people and he has gone up because he's victorious. He is the victorious king. It's really important in verse 3 that we see that he subdued peoples under him, under us, and nations under our feet. The psalmist here is he's using two different words, people and nations. So who is God subdued here? Everyone. The word for people, we see that in Ruth, where Ruth's telling Naomi that she's going to go back with Naomi to her people. It's talking about kinsmen, your people, other people like you, people you're related to. And then nations, of course, is used for people groups, ethnicities all around Israel. It's used by the prophets a lot to talk about Babylon. The point is, is that God has subdued everyone. Those who are in the family and those who are not in the family are all subdued beneath God and his people. Friend or foe, foreigner or native, all are under this king. And not only has he subdued all the peoples and nations, but he's given an inheritance to his people. He's like a conquering king, right? When a king goes in and he conquers a new land, what usually happens with that land? They break it up and they give it to their lords or their peoples. It's theirs. He is the victorious one, so he has the right to give it to whom he will. He has taken the land. It is his. And in verse 5, we see that he's now gone up. He has ascended to his throne with shouts and blaring trumpets all around him. He has been coronated as the king to a joyful assembly. That's the picture here. Shout and sing to him because look at his amazing victories. Now we have to ask, 
What exactly is the psalmist talking about? Is he talking about us? Because it says us. What's the context of this psalm? Well, it seems that it is talking about a historical event. Something happened. God was victorious. He gave his people an inheritance, and he ascended on his throne. It's Joshua through Samuel. So when God takes his people into the promised land, after they wander in the wilderness, he takes them into the promised land. They conquer it, all the peoples in the promised land. And what does he do with that land? He gives it to his people as an inheritance. And then, later, after the Davidic Wars, in 2 Samuel 6, David sets up a tent in Jerusalem, and what happens? The ark of the Lord goes up with shouts of joy, with David dancing. And then we also see that later with Solomon, there is peace in all the land. And the nations are coming to him. So this seems to be talking about historical events in Israel. The psalmist is saying, look back. Remember the victories of God. Remember how he gave to us an inheritance. Remember how he has subdued all of our enemies beneath us. Remember how he is reigning on his throne. He's showing us that the victories of God are what light on fire the hearts of his people. That's what he's modeling for us here in these first few verses, in the whole psalm, really. But another way to say this, he's saying our theology leads to our doxology. Our right understanding of who God is and what he's done promotes, leads to, can't stop but end up in praise of who God is. This is the same thing that John sees in the heavenly throne room in Revelation 5, right? So in Revelation 5, he sees this multitude, and they're recalling how Jesus is the lamb that's been slain, and he's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's the victorious king, is what they're saying. And then John writes, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Friends, when we see our king in his victory, we have to sing praises to him. We can't help it. When we look to the cross and we remember that Jesus has put to death our greatest enemies, sin and death, that he put upon himself our sin, he was, it looked like, subdued himself by our sin so that he would put it to death. When we hear his voice cry, it is finished, and we know that we are free. When we remember that he didn't only subdue our sin, but he rose from the grave, trampling upon it. That's why we sing, death was once my greatest enemy. Fear once had a hold on me. But the son who died, who took my sin, rose that I would be free indeed. When we sing that, 
when we remember that our lives are hidden in Christ so that no sin, no matter how big it is, no matter how dark it is, that you're free from it in Christ. When you remember that through faith, his victory is your victory, that you're not known for your sin, you're not condemned for your sin, you're known as a child of God. You are loved. When we understand that he came to save us, not because of anything in us, because of his love for us, out of his mercy, his unmerited and unconditional love in which he went to us, came to us, and gave us our inheritance. And when we remember that he's the one that's gone up, he has ascended on his throne, he is surrounded by shouts of joy, and one day every knee will bow to the Lord of lords and the King of kings. When we remember these truths, friends, we have to sing praises. Christian, if we believe the gospel, we have to sing. It's not an option. True theology must lead to doxology. You won't be able to help it. It's not just, hey, you better sing. It's, friend, do you believe it? And if you do, how are you not singing? The good news of Jesus is like a fire under a pot of water, right? And so the more fuel you add to that fire, the hotter it gets. And the hotter the water gets, it starts to bubble, and then it starts to simmer, and then it's boiling. Every truth of the gospel that you put into your heart should cause your water to boil over and sing. And friends, not only do you sing because you have to, you sing because you get to. And when you do, you get to encourage your brothers and sisters around you. You get to be the psalmist in Psalm 47. You get to say, look at his victories. So to the weary saint beside you, your voice singing praises to the king is a balm to their souls. Maybe someone can't sing boldly this morning. Maybe their hearts are carrying sorrow or grief. Maybe they just have a cloud of depression over them. Maybe they lost their job or they face illness or suffering that you don't even know about. As you sing, you declare the truth of your king and you comfort and encourage and admonish one another with the truths of the gospel. As we sing, we get to recount to ourselves and we get to remind one another of Jesus' victory. We are the psalmist. So in case you haven't caught on, the first application is sing. It's an easy application, isn't it? That's the kind of applications you like. The one that you can't help but do. Sing. Friends, I I encourage you to not be your typical Baptist, or I've heard Presbyterians make the same joke. I don't know why. This is a Baptist thing. Back off. Um, but sit in the front because then you get to hear the voices of the saints behind you. And even if you can't sing well or you don't think you can sing well, you can sing because you can talk. Um, maybe you can't sing parts. That's fine. You don't have to sing parts. Some people think you shouldn't sing parts. That's a debate we're not going to have this morning. Regardless, you can sing, and your king loves you. Do you think he cares if you sing flat? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He wants to hear you sing. Your brothers and sisters need to hear you sing. 
Christians, let us sing to our Lord for his victories. Now, before we move on to the next point, maybe you're here, and you're like, I don't know about that. I don't know about singing. Also, I don't know about those truths. But maybe they do, in some way, resonate with you. Maybe you do hear this victory, and you wonder, I don't feel victorious myself. The sin that you call seems to have a hold of me. I'm not free of a fear of death. I think about it often. And I don't know what it holds. Friends, if those are thoughts you have, I hope you heard some of the promises of Scripture that I read, some of the truths of the gospel. Jesus is the victorious one over your sin. And he does take away the fear of death. And he doesn't say, hey, go get your own victory and then come to me ready to get my victory. He says, here, have my victory. Take my victory and I'll take your fear. And I'll take your sin. And I'll take the punishment for it. So that you can stand before God in the glowing robes of his victory and his righteousness. He takes away the sin that plagues you and the fear that keeps you up. So turn to this victorious king in your heart. You will sing too. You will enter into the singing of his saints as we declare the victories of our king. So in this first section, the psalmist has called us into worship by recalling the victories of our king. I hope we've seen that by now. And he's shown us that when we remember his past victories, we will shout with joy. Maybe you don't clap. That's okay. You're making sounds. You're shouting with joy. You're singing. You're praising the king. Now, in the section, we see that it's not only because of past victories in that section, but in the section we're going into now, starting in verse 6, we see that we praise our king because of his present reign as well. His present reign is what swells our hearts to praise him as we remember his past victories and look to his throne today. So look back with me at verse 6, and we'll start our next section. Starting in verse 6, we read, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Okay. So at the front we saw this repetition of praise commands is what's setting this off. This is a new section. And it's kind of a repeated idea. For God is the king of all the earth. Same thing in the last one. But after that repetition of praise and reason, the psalmist goes into a very specific aspect of the king. It's his reign, his sovereignty. He reigns over the nations, meaning he's the king over everyone. That's the point. Even those who think they're in power, they're not. He is. On the earth, kings or princes, or I guess we should say 
dictators, parliament, and presidents rule. But they rule under his reign, upon his heavenly throne, it says holy throne. It's emphasizing who he is, but also the heavenly nature of it, the overness, if you will. They don't have any power that was not given to them by God. Jesus said this himself, right? He's on trial before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius says, don't you know I have the power to crucify you or to set you free? What did Jesus say? You have no power that was not given to you from above. All authority comes from this king, our king, God. All all power, all military might, verse 9, says all the shields of the earth belong to him. So all the shields and all the warriors that hold those shields are God's warriors. Praise him. These are truths worth singing about. How crippling is it whenever we forget that God is the one who is truly reigning right now and has all authority. How horrifying would it be if it wasn't true? Friends, when we understand that all authority is subjected to his authority, when all authority is only because he has allowed it and given it, it gives us comfort when we watch the 24-hour fear-mongering news cycle. It gives us hope when we consider the uncertainty of the future. It gives us a reason to praise him even when we're surrounded by a bunch of kindergartners arguing in our culture. As you watch the news, you can pray. I praise you, Lord, because right now you are reigning no matter what I see. At the same time, this might challenge us too. It might challenge the way some of us react and discuss politics and the political climate, the world around us. Christian, when Jesus told his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, he wasn't being poetic. He wasn't talking about spiritual authority. He was saying, I am the king. Peter says it in his sermon at Pentecost. He says, Jesus is both Lord, meaning God, and the Christ, the King who has come. Peter goes on to say, all we face in his first letter, even suffering, is by the will of God. So as we consider the hostile, tribal, even cynical culture around us, we have to oppose it. We have to oppose it, and we oppose it with joy. We oppose it with peace. We oppose it by singing to our sovereign king, by pointing to the fact that this may look dark, but our king is upon his throne, and he's reigning today. That's how we fight back. That's how we oppose. We don't fight. We sing. We sing to our king who reigns. Because his reign is what settles this craziest storm. It gives peace that surpasses all understanding. And it is what calms all of our anxieties. So our king, on his throne, reigning over everything we face. We sing praises to it. And when we do that, that is what testifies to him 
to those around us. This section reminds us that we are to praise God, not just for his victories in the past, but for the present peace that he gives to us under his reign. And now, let's back up from the text a little bit and look at the psalm in its entirety. When we do this, we'll notice that there is one theme that pervades this psalm from verse 1 to verse 9. It's in almost every single verse. It is that God is the king of all the earth, all the peoples, all the nations. There is a global vision in this psalm. And in the sense that all the peoples, it's not just saying there's a bunch of peoples out there, it's saying they're at peace because he's sitting on his throne. They are subdued and they are one, united as the people of the God of Abraham. This is a global picture and a hard thing to imagine when we look around us. But what this psalm is doing is it's looking forward and backwards. It's talking about, it's giving us a picture of the hope that's before us, but the promise that was given at the very beginning. This fits into the larger story that flows from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. So we're going to walk that story for a second. It started in the garden, the very beginning, when God made man and woman. He blessed them, and what did he say? Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. The intention was for Adam and Eve to have children, and that over time, the whole earth would be covered with one united people praising their one true king. That's the Genesis picture. And then Genesis 3 happens. And then Genesis 4 happens. And their children kill each other, or at least one kills the other. And then their children build a tower. Instead of spreading around over the globe, they come together and say, we're going to defy God and we're going to be together and safe this way instead of the plan that he had for us to go over the whole globe. And so he scatters them because God's plan will not be thwarted. And then he makes a promise. In Genesis 12, he promises Abraham, I will make a great nation out of you. And what's the end goal of this blessing in this nation? That all of the families of the earth would be blessed. The promise goes on. The plan's moving forward. And Israel comes about. And we talked about Solomon earlier. When Solomon's on the throne, the temple's built. God's people are at peace. God is in the temple, on the ark. And the queen of Sheba comes and pays homage to God. It looks like Genesis 1 is happening. And then Genesis 1 Kings chapter 11 comes. And then chapter 12 and 13 and following. But when Jesus comes, the true son of Abraham, the true Israel, the true son of David, all the people can be blessed and brought into one new family. In John 12, Jesus tells his disciples that when he's lifted up, he will draw all peoples to himself. 
And so it's through his death and his resurrection that the original purpose of Genesis 1 is now made possible. And now through faith in Jesus, you become an heir of Abraham. You are brought into the family and you receive the promises given. This story then reaches its pinnacle in Revelation 7. When John sees the final kingdom and the hope of God's people, where there's one people made up of every nation, tribe, people group, and language, all serving and praising God. The world is covered in one voice, worshiping the one true king. That's what Psalm 47 is giving us a glimpse of. It's a taste of that future glory and fulfillment of the whole Bible's plan. And what does that do but draw us into the story? It says, this is your story. It shows us that we are all going into this global community of God's people. And so it's calling us, it's inviting us to seek to sing to our king beside all of his people. It's calling us to mission. It's, it's putting in us a vision of what the community is supposed to look like and saying, go. That's what Jesus does. Victorious king, go. Go make disciples. Or we would read Psalm 47 and we say, go make worshipers. Go make worshipers. We should have a growing desire in us to sing to our king and a growing desire to hear more and more others sing beside us. A desire to declare the good news of our king to others and to draw them into worship with us. We need to leave Psalm 47 with a vision and a passion to see all peoples and nations become true worshipers of the king who shows them love and mercy and is the victorious and reigning king. We should want everyone to see and to know and be a part of this community. And so, we must ask ourselves, how do we do this? We've seen our first application. It's the easy one. Sing. The second one, sing and trust and remember that he is reigning. This third one, how do we join in the story of Psalm 47? How do we seek to see more worshipers of God from all peoples? Well, I have four Ps. Four Ps. First, pray. Pray. The first P for seeing more worshipers of all peoples is pray. We must never downplay the power of prayer, friends. Some of the largest and most impactful missions movements were started at prayer meetings. Pray for the missions efforts that we do as a body. Pray for Indian internationals. Pray for the seminary that we support. Pray for the IMB. Pray. Pray for unreached people groups. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for partnerships that we don't have right now to come up. Pray that the Lord would use you to go or to raise up others to go. 
Friends, we have to start with our desire and passion for others to worship God. It starts in prayer, fervent prayer. Second P, prepare. There are so many resources available to help us to grow in our understanding of missions and to provide help in getting more involved in missions. Every year we have a class here in Indianapolis called Perspectives. We will pay to help you go to that. It will show you this heart and the story of missions through the Bible and give you different ways to engage in missions when you finish it. You can prepare by reading books like Let the Nations Be Glad. Or you can ask others what missions agencies that they know and support. Put it in front of you and be on the lookout for opportunities. Be prepared and prepare for missions. The third P, provide. We already provide as a body to Indian internationals. We support one of our members here. We provide to the IMB, the International Mission Board. We provide to ITS, a seminary here in the city that is passionate about raising up committed followers of Jesus to go and proclaim. But friends, we need to provide and we can provide in so many more ways. Think about different ways you can provide yourself. Financial need is a great need among missions agencies. Ask a missionary. You can personally provide for them. I'd recommend that you have a personal relationship with them, but you can provide, and you can encourage them and others by giving. You can also provide with other resources, like your time. You can invest yourself in those who say they want to go. All right, I'm going to disciple you. You can give yourself to others to help send them. Parents, you can provide by not discouraging your young adults to go. You can provide by praying for your little children that the Lord would use them. You can provide. And the last P, participate. Participate. Ultimately, we press into the call of Psalm 47. We jump into this story. We make it our passion to see it happen by doing it, by going after it. And that doesn't mean you have to leave the country. You don't have to leave the county. You can talk to your neighbor, your coworker, your workout friend, your, your children, your family member that's not a believer. Friends, make the gospel the tune of everything you sing and talk to with other people. That's how you participate. You participate by talking and seeking to see others know and love Jesus and maybe you will participate by going across borders. Praise God. And as a church, we need to be wanting, we need to be desiring to raise up people to do that. We should send those who we may not want to send, but are willing to send. But when we have a passion to see all of God's people praise the King, we will participate in any way we can. Prayer, financial support, or even going ourselves. So Psalm 47 gives us a grand picture, doesn't it? Again, you walk in, and it's this jubilee of celebration and joy. And it's of all peoples, 
singing to their one king together. It shows us that God is the king over all the earth, and he is worthy of the praise of all the earth. It calls us into this congregation to sing with them. It invites us to raise our voice and to sing with them to our king together so that others will hear and come as well. And it points us to the day when that will be every day, when we will be surrounded by all the king's people, declaring and praising his victory and his sovereignty. So until then, friends, let us sing. Let us sing to our king. Let us commit ourselves to seek to praise the king in his global community today and that blessed day before us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us this peak behind the curtain, this peak into this joyous celebration, this congregation of rejoicing and praising of the king who has trampled upon the grave, the king who has taken away all of our sin, the king that has set us free the king who that loves us and tells us, come to me. Father, we long for that day. We pray that you would help us to remember the truths that cause our hearts to sing, that you would cause us to sing with great joy, that you would use the singing of your saints to encourage others. And Father, we pray that you would use us to reach those who do not yet sing that they would come, that they would hear, and that they would proclaim the glories of our King. And we pray this in his name. Amen.